This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about the mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Before we go on to the guest intro, I've just got to say I am extremely sad to say on this podcast that friends of the pod, friends of Vent, and the people who played the first ever Vent gig, just checking in live number one, Patawawa, have sadly announced they are splitting up and going on to pastures new. We're very, very sad about this news. We're very excited to see what Sam, Beth and Rory do with their lives going forward. We're going to continue to use the theme tune, of course, for all episodes. And yeah, just a very, very sad time. I was a bit emotional when Sam put the news out. But, you know, this is the reality of being in the full-time world, doing jobs and doing music at the same time. So, yeah, please still go and listen to their music. Still go and buy their album. It's absolutely amazing. It's called Power Up. I'm heartbroken i don't get to hear those songs live but what can you do now that's all out of the way let's get on with introducing today's guest boy oh boy oh boy my special guest for this episode is someone i've been trying to get on this pod for a very very long time literally probably since i started then if you can believe that me and this guest have known each other for over 15 years, possibly even a bit more, and ever since he read the first Vent article I did about my mental health, he has been building himself up to this moment and this podcast episode. That person is the man, the myth, the local North East London legend, Spike Potter-Clark. Now, for anyone who might know Spike, you'll be very excited for this podcast, but anyone who doesn't, Spike is a sports fanatic like me, and if you thought I was a 19.5 out of 10 extrovert, Spike definitely tops me on that chart, as hard as that is to believe, I know. Me and Spike met at a place called Wanstead Cricket Club, where he was not only a bit of a boat or face around the club, but his dad, Brian, was a player, coach me, and a lot of the boys I'm still mates with now, and is even bigger local legend. This is the first time Spike has spoken publicly about his mental health, specifically his experiences of anxiety and depression. We also talk about self-acceptance, the power of sport in helping people with their mental health, living up to people's expectations of you, maybe why you shouldn't do that, social pressure and social media culture as well are all on the menu. This is going to be a very energetic, high-paced podcast. I try and keep my extroverted list a bit more balanced with his but I'm really, really pleased I can show you this podcast episode because I think it will help not only all of you listeners, but I know it will help Spike massively. So this is how our conversation went. As I live and breathe, Spike Potter-Clark, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Hey, mate, how are you? It's been a long, long time coming, this has. I feel like you text me or you message me or even maybe you saw me at the Cuckfield, maybe, when you were about to go travelling, you said, Fred, I want to do something, do some event. I don't think the podcast was even started yet, but you said to me at some point then, we need to do something. It's taken this long, this long to get here. Really? I, yeah, I, mate. I don't remember 
remember that. Yeah, mate. You said to me just before you went travelling, you were like, Fred, yeah, I love what you're doing with Ven. Da, 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 da. And then, what, two years later, two and a half years later, here we are. I thought you were saying before you even thought about event, I thought you were basically saying all of your success, all of it was. <laughs> I'm was not giving down you that me. much credit, mate. It's down not... to me. And it's, it's now on record. So, uh, <laughs> cheers for that, Fred. I, I, I actually do remember that very vividly. And that is true. I did give you the idea about this. <laughs> I'm not going to let you get away with that one, mate. First off, how have you been adjusting to life back in the UK? Because for the listeners, You've just come back, well, I say you just, you've come back from an extended period of travelling. I think you got back about six months ago, maybe, maybe seven months ago. But you came in in the sort of back, back end of a pandemic. Yes, it, it, was a very, uh, it was a very SPC move. If, if anyone knows me, that was, that was straight out of the SP, uh, SPC handbook. I mean, looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But at the time, I, I was still, I suppose, naive to the whole COVID situation. I was just so sure that I was going to come back. I was looking forward to a completely unrestricted Christmas in the cockfield, dancing on tables, um, <laughs> annoying everyone and their, and, and their family and just having a great time. So, yeah, I think it, it was the right time for me to come back from Australia. And funny enough, or, or fittingly, it was, it was because of all the stuff we're about to speak about, as well as other things. But the main thing was the fact that I wanted my mental health to be, to be better. And it was mm. a right move for that. Which not a lot of people will know. No, they really, really won't. Because... It's not something I'm very open to my close friends, but other than that, other than that, on on face value, I'm not very open. It, it, I suppose it takes it takes a lot. There's a few time. walls. There's a few layers of onions to get exactly. through. Yeah, like like a lot of men, like yeah. a lot of men. It takes yeah. a long time for to go. Oh, there's actually a bit more to you than just <laughs> than just being an idiot. But yeah, I, I did come back and naively thought that it was all going to be over very soon. So I wasn't really thinking that I was going to come back in the middle of a pandemic that was going to go on until now. We've got a lot to get through. Let's just crack on with the show, mate. You didn't want to muck about on this pod, Spike, and you just wanted to talk about your journey. So we're going to do that now. I ask all my guests this question first, as you've maybe listened to Lloyd Taylor's pod, or you maybe you've listened to other people's pods. So tell me about your early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Spike we meet here? My life and my childhood was probably as good as it could as it could be. There was absolutely no signs of any mental health struggles right up until what seemed like overnight. It sucker punched me in, in the gut. My life was beautiful, mate. Mum and dad, absolute heroes. Shout out to Bri, we have to give him a shout out now. Shout out to Bri, <laughs> shout out to Ray, unbelievable parents that I've just got unbelievable love amounts of love for. They were teachers, so all of summer holiday with them, all of half term with them. And, and they were just so generous, mate. Ski holidays, member of local cricket club, golf club, tennis club, football club. So, mate, my my, my life was the epitome of privileged and blessed. And yeah, I, I was I was extremely happy kid, mate. You, you remember from those beautiful Friday nights at cricket? Yeah, I was I was just right. Iconic, iconic, one might say. Iconic, mate. I was I was playing tennis the other day, and it was the first Friday training, and it was just so lovely to see after all this nonsense of lockdown nothing ever changes does it really mate, when it, yeah. well apart from they're, they're in groups of six. Oh, okay of course, apart yeah. from the covid restrictions yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but no it's obviously but mate yeah my, my whole childhood was, was sport I, I was just running around happy as larry hitting a tennis ball bowling a cricket ball trying to hit a golf ball etc etc um so yeah, you're one of those annoying kids that was good at every sport I, you know what <laughs> mate? i'd actually say i was like above average I, I was i was never very good but i've got this beautiful skill of being 
above just enough. Average, yeah, just yeah. enough at many. I'm jealous. <laughs> I was bar- I was barely below average at cricket. <laughs> <laughs> I was like never number one. I was like third at everything. But um, no, I mean, I was yeah. My mum and dad were amazing, and uh, get, getting me into into sport, which I'm sure we'll speak about, probably did absolute wonders for my personality. It was a good grounding for you. It was just, I think, just great. I just, I just think I, I would just always promote anyone to get their kids into sport. Just mm. learning to lose, learning mm. to win, learning to excel individually, learning to work in a team. I think there's just so many life lessons in sport. It's, it's and a distraction as well. Probably kept you. I mean, I don't, I don't think you would have been a massively naughty child, but it probably kept you off the streets, getting you into a, you know, rough and tumbles or shenanigans. So I mean, you probably did as well, but. The right sort of shenanigans. <laughs> oh, mate, I've, I've got my gangster side, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> mate, I, was, I, I went to Leighton Stone School. I was called Kid Fatal for a bit. Don't, don't, don't worry about that, mate. But no, like it was, it is, well, it, yeah, it is a great distraction. It gives you, I suppose, a purpose in life when you didn't even realise you needed a purpose. You weren't thinking about mm. it. But yeah, Saturdays, get up, play a sport. Sundays, get up, play a sport. And yeah, tennis I had an unbelievable passion for, so it's great having something that you, you love in your life. And yeah, like right up until 2016, when I first started experiencing mental health problems, mate, my life was beautiful. Uh, mm. I'm blessed with unbelievable groups of friends. I'm much of a social chameleon, so I'm in all different groups. Mum and dad were there for me. They they paid for that holidays to Napa when we <laughs> when we went to Napa. And yeah, my life was holidays, festivals and sunshine and, and daisies. I'll keep those stories from Napa off the pod. We'll talk about that off air because I don't want you to get incriminated for anything. Yeah, I think but, there's some um, issues there. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, mate, the big reason you wanted to do this pod and way back when when you told me about it was your experiences of anxiety and depression. And like you said there, it felt like a, su- a sucker punch or a punch to the gut. Tell me more about that. Tell me how it started and how that manifested for you. So what, what I will say, it's, it's specifically social anxiety. So it's not general anxiety. About- People would be surprised to hear that if they know you, wouldn't they? Off, mate, from the outside. It's like the most ironic thing in the world. It's somewhat funny. It's like there is someone up there and they're just like, okay, this guy's getting a bit too, bit too brave. He's getting a bit too cocky. Let me just humble him. Have a bang on this. <laughs> but yeah, it's very specifically social anxiety. I'm not anxious about... I don't know, I don't have a panic attack on a plane or I don't have irrational thoughts about an attack on a train. It's social anxiety and that triggers the depression. So depression is like a... Um, so it's a byproduct of it. Exactly, it's okay. a byproduct. When, it's get, when the anxiety is getting out of control. Okay. Exactly. It's never the depression comes and then I get socially anxious. It's, all, it's always... They're interlinked, it's not like separate. Exactly, okay. it's, all, it's always social anxiety and then that triggers the, the, the bouts of depression. Can I just also just quickly, mate, before we kind of go more in depth about that, you said to me that reading, and I'm not trying to make this about myself, but when you read my article on Ven, it sort of waked you up a little bit or made you think about your own behaviours back in school. Can you just elaborate on that a bit for me? Did it make you more self-aware of how you acted in school or, or maybe even to the most extreme, maybe regret some of the behaviour you did or, or was it more of a just a, oh, this is mental health? Yeah, so in the sea of negative impacts that mental health has had on my life, there have been some positive ones. And some of those positive impacts have been the fact that I'm now infinitely more empathetic, sympathetic, more understanding of mental health issues and more aware of how my previous behaviour and how my behaviour when I am in a good mood can affect others. I was just so ignorant to mental health problems because it was the last thing that I thought I'd be affected by. And I suppose that's quite a selfish way of looking at life, but it's just... But it's true. a human thing, because back then the mental health was, education wasn't there, and most people probably thought that. I probably thought that at one point. 
it's true. I, I never thought it'd be something I'd have to worry about. And I was just so ignorant to it. When, when people used to mention anxiety or anxiety would get brought up in general conversation, I didn't even understand the word. I was like, what, what's like, you mean you're nervous? What, what do you mean you're anxious? So one thing that going through what I've gone through in the last four years, it, it has made me so much more understanding and empathetic. And you released that article when four I years ago was, now. Four years ago when I was in, I remember, well, I was in Hanoi in Vietnam. And I read that and it, it just, yeah, it just reconfirmed some thoughts I had. And it just made me look at how I was in secondary school or how I was before experiencing mental health problems when I'm really, my normal self or my confident self is a nightmare for people with social anxiety. And what's funny is... In my, what sense, mate? In the sense that I... People not knowing where you stood with them or like you'd maybe make a joke and then they think you like, maybe you would th- someone would think you were good mates so then maybe, maybe you'd cut them down and they go, oh, where do I stand with him now? That sort of stuff. Or was it something deeper than that? In a sense that my view on what confidence is has changed. I saw my confidence as something that I'd earned as if like I deserved it. And if you weren't confident, that's on you. You know, what's, what's wrong with you, mate? Just be confident, right? Very ignorant. Whereas now I see it as a blessing. I don't think that... Whoever's confident is just naturally confident and they've just been blessed with, with, with that in their life and some people are naturally introvert. And what I did is I, I probably abused my confidence. I, I made people the butt of the jokes. I, I, I said jokes without thinking what effect that would have on, on, on people. And I was just very, like being honest, I'm very obnoxious. I'm, I'm very loud, in your face, cocky at times or definitely cocky before experiencing mental health problems. And I was... A nightmare, you know, putting people on the spotlight, making jokes, making jokes that weren't very, you know, I suppose, PC or, or compassionate. Because in my mind, because I was so confident I had, and I had thick skin, I would just be like, oh, why are you being so sensitive, man? Mate, come on, it's just a joke. So you're assuming other people had that same level of that you did. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where the empathy is coming, where I now realise that a joke that someone's made about me has triggered a week-long anxiety bout. I'm like, oh, okay sharpen up be a bit more compassionate so yeah there's been a, a sea of neg- negative impacts but one thing i am proud about it's given me a lot more depth in life a lot more empathetic and a lot more compassionate mate so just your article made me really regret some of the behaviors or some of the ways i was in secondary school that's but, growth mate that's growth and that's good and, 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 and I'm, I'm proud that you've come this far on that journey and we've not even got to some of the deeper stuff yet so let's talk about a levels because, like you said, you've gone through this journey through secondary school. You went to Leighton Stonelight, friend of the pod, Jay Williams, where you were probably quite, you were probably quite a good boys. You were in the same team at cricket. He was head boy at one point. You were probably in the cricket team or football team at Leighton Stone, which is, you know, sports signifier. So you probably had a decent enough time and you survived pretty well. But who's the spike we meet at this point? Because you left, obviously, Leighton Stone, for the listeners, and you went to Wanstead High, which is my local school but where my brother went to but where all my mates went to so tell me about that journey who's who's despite me at this point yes i went to leighton stone fantastic school but very very different to wanstead and i think that just speaks about the melting pot that is east london and just the different demographics there's only 15 minutes distance from him as well which which says a lot yeah exactly so it was a very different experience the way i'd explain wanstead and i because of playing sport i knew what Wanstead was like Wanstead was like a you know american high school and it was just (laughs) wild and that's actually where all the bad kids were right but no one looked at that way and then Leightonstone, which you'd probably say they were all the bad, naughty kids. They were like not the bad kids, but they, they had to because of their certain situation, if that makes sense. So product of their environments more than them being innately bad kids, if that makes sense. Or was it something different than that? 
Yeah, like that. Yeah. Like, but it was just a very different... So the way I'd explain it would be... Um, Lane and Stone would be the stereotypical bad kids, but then really the bad kids were at once did partying and doing stuff they shouldn't doing have. Doing a madness, and, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. But yeah, mate, going to Wanstead was, again, amazing. Like, I had my great Lane and Stone group of mates. I went to Wanstead. wasn't very hard for me because I'd played cricket with so many of these You knew people. everyone. You knew a lot of people there already. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it was great, mate. I was, I, I was the new kid on the block, I suppose, and it was fantastic, unbelievable time, went skiing, went on a skiing holiday in February, joined in September, that skiing holiday I made some unbelievable friends, and yeah, it was just a great experience, it was great meeting new people, at that point I obviously loved being social, that's all I cared about, being social, being Mr Popular, going out as much as I can, and yeah, mate, it was it was fantastic, and once it actually was a, a great school, like the teaching was was really good. It's come a long way, I feel, like in the last 15 years. Yeah, no, mm. it, it seemed really good, so yeah, again... As I said before, my life was sunshine and daisies and that was just another fantastic experience mm. to go with all the other great experiences I had. Do you feel like speaking there that you prioritise maybe going out than studying or what was the angle there? Oh yeah, I think that's very fair to say. <laughs> I was trying to lean into it a little bit, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no need to lean into that, you can, you, you can crash through that door. I mean, my mum and dad were both teachers, exceptionally intelligent. My brother went to university, very intelligent, sister, etc., so yeah, I just, I just, I suppose it's just like, because of my mum and dad being so intelligent, tiny bits of that rubbed off on me, and GCSEs were just easy, so I just thought I didn't have to work too much at A-levels. And the jump is mad, the yeah. jump is mad. <laughs> and also I just, I just, I was just naive, mate, I just, I just wasn't, mm. I wasn't switched on like that, mate, I just, I thought I was, no matter what happens, you know, what age was I there, 18, I was just still convinced I was going to be a Premier League football player, even though I can't play football, I was convinced that I was somehow going to win an Oscar before I was 25, so I didn't have many, many worries in life, I didn't think, I need to, you know, sit down and work here, I just thought I was destined for greatness. Invin- invincible is the word I'm hearing a lot, <laughs> it's yeah, coming mate. to mind here. <laughs> mate, you can't be called Spike Potter Clark, I was like, surely, surely this name's got to be on a billboard. Um, so yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, mate, yeah, it's fair to say that I cared a lot more about going to Sheepwalk, mate, on a, on a Friday. Now the birds. Now the birds, yeah. mate. Now actually a very, very good pub. Yeah, if you were there uh, for the Sheepwalk days, then then you'll know mm. that it was probably better to uh, stay at home and revise. Mm. When you get through your A-levels, mate, the impact of kind of the, I don't want to call it the sesh life, but of maybe prioritising going out more than studying began to kick in academically, didn't it? So can you tell me about this part of your journey and then when the realisation kind of came that you maybe weren't going to go to university? Again, so I I suppose just that naivety of being an 18-year-old kid, I was just like, well, of course I'm going to go to university. I mean, my brother did, my sister did. It was a be all and end all for all of us, wasn't it, really? Everyone felt like that was the objective and there was nothing else if you didn't. Yeah, but at that time I didn't realise that in life you actually have to do it. I just thought (laughs) thought life happened to you. Yeah, I suppose not getting into A2 was like the first point of life. I was like, oh... This is how life works. Okay. So life actually doesn't work out. You don't get the white picket fence with the million pound house and et cetera, et cetera. You've actually got to, you've actually got to make it happen. Yeah. I suppose my actions and my decisions then started to make those sort of effects. And yeah, I didn't get to A2, but at that point I didn't, again, just my outlook on life. I didn't mind that much about anything. I had a very flippant, happy-go-lucky look on life. Again, I just thought everything's going to work out. Everything's sweet. So yeah, I was upset that I didn't get into 2013, but again, I was, it's all right, weekend's coming, we'll, we'll go out, everything's going to be sweet. Who's this might we meet here then? 
oh, the spike you meet here is is just very, very different. Just humbled by life, and I mean, I'm still naive, but a lot less naive. And yeah, I mean, I mean, the contrast of the spike you meet at AS levels compared to the spike you meet in 2016 compared to the spike here. I mean, they're free. Chalk and cheese, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. three completely different different people. But mm. but but still, still an idiot. That's been the main. <laughs> I thing. wouldn't change that, mate. I wouldn't change <laughs> that for you. Let's talk about your experiences of anxiety and depression in a bit more detail, because, like you said, it was 2016, 2017 when it first arrived. When you entered adulthood and you left behind the majority of the sports teams you were in, so football. Cricket, I'm thinking predominantly. Obviously, golf is an individual sport, so you could always play that. But did you struggle to adjust to that sort of lack of team environment, being such a social creature? I definitely did a little bit with cricket. I'll be honest, for me, no. Okay. For for me, no. I I, I loved sport and I loved all of the friends that I had at those sports clubs. But no, I just just had great groups of mates elsewhere. and, And I think like others, your passion for sport. Once you get to a stage where you can go out and party and, and drink, your passion then becomes that. But obviously now as you get older, I'm now getting back into all of those sports. But yeah, I think that camaraderie and the social skills you learn from playing sport, they are with me forever. And they weren't going to stop just because I stopped playing sport. Yeah, you touched on that, who's the spike we meet now. The spike in 2016 couldn't have been a better version. And again, I, I'll, we'll touch on it later about how external factors for me don't, affects how I'm internally feeling my life wasn't on paper that amazing in 2016 or that amazing in 2015 etc but my life externally how I felt my happiness only grew as my life went on 2014 was great 2015 better 2016 etc it was just like this trajectory of being happier being close with my mates and just loving life you felt like it was only going up from there yeah and I suppose if like a, a financial analyst looked at it and be like oh yeah this is this is coming down this you know this is a this is a happy trend bubble. is there the expected goals are gonna run out eventually <laughs> yeah if, if someone looked at the graph if someone like everyone's going to cryptos now so everyone's like <laughs> everyone's reading graphs a financial analyst would be like yeah this is now nah, short this short this this is this is not this is going up for no reason this is going to crash soon. so burnout was coming maybe maybe i mean yeah but the version in 2016 i was the happiest I've ever been the most confident, the most social, the most close to my friends. My outlook on life was the best. It would have been hard to find someone as happy, as confident and as loving of life as me in 2016. And then I mentioned that sucker punch. What seemed like overnight with absolutely no trigger, just no trigger at all. Not one you could pinpoint. Look, I've gone down the roots of at one point, everything was a trigger. Right, to, yep. because this just comes with unbelievable amount of overthinking and rumination. I was going to say, that sounds like overthinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, I- I'm an overthinker anyway. So mm. then mental health on top of it, at one point, everything was a trigger, right? To the extent where I had a tooth taken out in November 2016. Like a wisdom tooth or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I somehow convinced myself that was that, <laughs> right? And the reason why, because I was like... I, cause, I struggle to articulate myself when mm-hmm. I'm going through social anxiety and that was part of it. I couldn't speak in big groups. I felt like I developed a stutter and it was all linked to articulating myself. So I was like, oh, this is it. I had a tooth out. It somehow changed how I speak and this is the trigger. So at one point, everything was a trigger, but most of the time when I'm 90% thinking about it, I'm super convinced there was no trigger, mate. Like my That was life- just the thing that happened to you in life and yeah. like everything. Like my life was good. Yeah, there was no change in family situations. There's no change in friend situation. There's no change in financial situation. There's no mm. change in. There was no big news for me personally. It was innate. 
It was just something that changed and then you changed with it. It was just the weirdest thing in the world, mate. What seemed like overnight, my thoughts changed. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice keeps breaking. <laughs> it's fine, don't worry, don't worry. We'll keep, we'll keep that in as well. Yeah, like all of my thoughts, all of my optimism, all of my confidence, yeah, my outlook on life. It just seemed to flip, mate. I was just like mm. then filled with this anxiety. And instead of this outlook on life on everything's going to work out, everything's going to be great, I just filled with this anxiety about life. And instead of being confident and looking forward to the weekend and really wanting to be social, I was filled with this social anxiety about being terrified about going out mm. on the weekend or terrified about being in a social situation when normally all I wanted to be was centre of attention in, in, in a social situation. I was going to say, how did that play into the SPC, which is, I guess, the moniker or the kind of playful way that you were the extroverted person on nights out? You know, how did that play into how you acted and then maybe the assumptions people made about you or the behaviours they expected you to live up to, you know. Who's the real spike beyond that? I think that question comes later in the journey. But yeah, I mean, I suppose everyone's got an accentuated version of themselves. And and definitely you wouldn't call that SPC, I don't know, alter ego for, a, you know, a deep chat, right? Mm. You, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm, I'm in bother here. Let me ring SPC or, mm. oh, you know, um, you know, I'm going through something here. I need to really speak about someone seriously. Let me call SPC. Yeah. You called SPC. He's slide tackling people in McDonald's. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you're calling SPC if you want to make some bad decisions and you want to go out and have a wild night. So, yeah, yeah that definitely wasn't my serious side. But like many people, yeah, a lot of people have different layers. Mm. Um, Was it a mask for you at any point? It wasn't. It, it wasn't. That, that's, well, that's good then. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's genuinely who I was. But what I will say is that I could turn up my confidence if I needed to, as in like, it wasn't disingenuous, but I could turn it up if I needed to. It could be a mixture of legit confidence and bravado, as in like, I'd say an interview scenario is the best. So for interviews, especially when I was going for sales interviews, so it's perfect, I would be more, you know, like Jack the Lad or mm. like, hello mate, how are you? So I could turn it up, but no, it wasn't a mask. Now, that's what I'm saying, Maybe that question was later on the journey, for sure. For sure, it'd be a lot more bravado and I have to live up to certain expectations. But going back to what I said, how saying my normal personality is a nightmare for people with social anxiety. Well, of course, I do have social anxiety. So my normal personality isn't just a nightmare for other people. It's a nightmare for me as well. As if like I am this confident extrovert and also this introvert now with social anxiety. So some of my behaviours or the expectations or the perception or the character I've built when being confident is of course very hard to maintain when I've got social mm. anxiety and then of course because the contrast is so big I can't hide like if I was an introverted person it wouldn't be that obvious mm. it wouldn't be that obvious so when I was off and going through 2017 when I first started social anxiety Mate, people knew instantly. Mate, this is me. This is my life you're chatting to right now. If I'm ever off and I'm ever a little bit quiet or whatever, people always pick up on it. And sometimes it's annoying because you might just not want to be the centre of attention all the time or you might just want to take a step back in that group conversation. And people just might say, oh, Fred, why are you, why are you this? Why are you that? And I'm just like, I don't need to be on all the time. Did you feel that? 100%. 100%. And that's when I realised, oh, I've, I've, yeah, I have built a character that I just can't withhold with, with this social anxiety. So yeah, the first time I started experiencing it was actually at a festival. I went to a festival late 2016 and I was totally looking forward to it. But when I got there, I just couldn't speak in this big group. I was just filled with anxiety about being social, about saying something. I don't even know what it was, but I just had to go over what I wanted to say. Even it was like, 
oh, hey, do you want to go to the stage? About 15 times. And then by the time, the, by the time I was ready to say It's it, five o'clock, you're ready to go home. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. they, they were already at the stage I wanted to go to. And I was surrounded by no one. So that's when I first started experiencing it. And then, yeah, touching on SPC and Spike and I suppose talking about identities, I'd say the first year, mixed in with the ignorance, I didn't even know I was going through social anxiety because I was so ignorant of it. The first year was just like an identity crisis. And what was so funny is I opened up to people in 2017 that I then opened up to in 2019 and looked at the whole situation completely different. Mm. And when I spoke to them like, oh yeah, you said in 2017 this, this and this. And I went, oh, did I? I was like, oh, that's not, no, that's not what I'm going through. Because I was so, I was still so ignorant in 2017. And it was pretty much just an identity crisis. And touching on what you said before, look, I didn't have a career I loved. I didn't have a massive passion at the time like I do have with golf. The centre of my life or like the foundation of my tower block was being social. I wanted to be Mr. Popular in every single group and that was the foundation of my life. So when the social anxiety took away that, it was like... You're losing yourself. It was like the foundation of, let's say, a Jenga block tower. When that was taken out, it was sort of like everything around me crashed as well. Without that part of my life, without being the person I wanted to be social and confident then it had a massive effect on every different Mm. part of my life with my family with my work and whatnot how hard was that for you yeah I mean it's awful yeah you know it as well and and everyone who's been this this beast that is mental health is wild in so many different ways it's crazy mate it's awful after you experienced these feelings of anxiety and depression spike you bolted pretty much (laughs) and went traveling for like you said, three to four years. However, you told me that 2017 was the worst year of my life off air. Tell me about this period of your life, as many people might foolishly think that travelling is solely a joyous experience. How did you deal with it? Yeah, yeah, it's funny I said that offline. It's probably quite harsh, and and I know how I must sound on this podcast. I'm, I'm literally saying that the worst years of my life were me travelling the world with my best mates. So again, I do understand how privileged that makes my life in general. And I do understand the the hilarity or the perhaps of contradiction that. of it maybe. Exactly. Yeah. But but then again I think that is great commentary on how wild of a beast mental health is. And we're gonna to touch on it soon is for me, external factors make no difference. And I and I learnt that from travelling. Mate, twenty seventeen on paper should have been the best year of my life. My office at that time, the work I was in, was my most favourite office. I was on the most amount of money I've been on. You know, it wasn't a lot, but for me, it, it was it was the most I've ever been on. And I was surrounded by some of the best people I've ever met. But it just shows you, as I said, how much of a beast it is. That it was just yeah, twenty seventeen was just such a hard year, and it's because that was the first year of ever experiencing it, and it was overnight, and it was just such a contrast to the first 21 years of my life so I just again it was just that sucker punch to the gut and if it was a sucker punch to the gut 2017 was a year of being winded and then the years after I slowly got my breath back and I realized how to deal with it but um I went traveling which is something that I always always dreamt of the people that were going were like the people out of all of my friends I'd want to do it with most and that was the main thing I I could have gone traveling any year but the people that were going were just were just the people I wanted. A lot of rascals went on that when when, uh, when you did, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up training with four best mates, but it was just a great group. I probably would have gone anyway, but what I'd experienced 
for the last year of mental health, it just made it so much easier. Like, if I'm being honest, again, it was just the naivety and ignorance of me thinking that the same way anxiety had come out of nowhere, it was going to disappear out of nowhere. You thought, was, you thought traveling would cure your mental health issues, basically? Pretty much. That first year, the way I approached my mental health was, look, it, dis- it came out of nowhere, it appeared out of nowhere, it's going to disappear out of nowhere. And it was all about trying to find the trigger and trying to find the magic pill. And there is no magic pill. Absolutely not. Well, maybe there is. If there is, is, there'll be a billion, it's a billion dollar industry. If someone finds it, send it over. But yeah, whereas now, and talking about who's despite me today, my mindset's completely changed. I've realised that I'm going to deal with this for my whole life and it's not about making it go away. It's about learning to live with it, control it. Maybe even overcome it. Maybe overcome it. But I think that overcoming is is not a fact that it's going to go away completely. It's just you realise how to deal with it. Whereas the first year, I thought there was a magic pill and I thought that magic pill was travelling. It, it just made sense to me. It was like, I'm going to go traveling with my best mates. It's all about being social and being an extrovert. You've got this. Go mm. out there. Be wild. You've got nothing to worry about. You've got the money. You've got no job. You just have to worry about yourself now. Just go for it. Mm. Go back to who you were, being wild, and it's all good. You're going to come back. And it was so easy to compartmentalize because I think the way our calendars work, we look at lives it's like a year, don't we? Oh, that was a good year. That was a bad year. Oh, this year I'm going to be fit and healthy. Oh, this year I'm going to start being a vegetarian. So I first experienced mental health in September, October 2016. I went traveling September, October 20... Sorry, I first experienced it, yeah, 2016, September, October. I first went traveling September, October 2017. It was like, okay, cool. It's a perfect year, right? All I've got to do is write off that year. It was a bad season, off season, cool. One year of my life that was bad. I'm now going to go traveling. Everything's going to go away. And then again, if there was a man upstairs that chucked me the social anxiety to humble me, this was like another chuck was like saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, mate. Have a bail on this. And then experienced, unfortunately, some of the worst bouts and some of the worst cases of social anxiety I'd, I'd ever experienced. Mm. Give me some examples of those dark moments that you had. It was just because of what I said. Traveling, you're in a hostel of... 25 people that gives me anxiety just thinking about it by the way it's sharing a room with 25 people i want my own space yeah i actually say hostels of 25 people it it, it was hostels of 100 plus people you're living in a room an open room of about 16 people mate it was the first time i'll tell you what was the most amazing thing i saw traveling a bunk bed that had four beds on it mate that's insane i thought it only went up to two so it was just crazy and of course what are people there to do they haven't got any jobs there's no working they're there to socialize and what you're supposed to there's games there's karaoke nights there's quiz nights it was just all built on being social which was my 2016 version's dream heaven perfect oh brilliant i get to be center of attention i get to be obnoxious i get to dance on tables oh look at me 25 people in this room 25 people to me whereas as i explained the contrast with social anxiety and anyone who experiences social anxiety that is like hell it was just crazy all i wanted to do was to go out to the main bit of the um hostel or leave my bed because like, a lot of the beds had covers to give it a slight bit of privacy i wanted to open up the curtain get out and meet people that's really what i wanted to do but my mind just didn't allow it because i was so terrified of meeting people i would just stay in my bed mate well anyone who knows with social anxiety it zaps your energy as well mm. or mental health you just got this weird fatigue where you just have no sounds a bit dark but I'm just gonna be honest you have no desire to get up in the morning you have no desire to get out of bed you have no energy to to do anything and like yeah I mean it sounds weird but I could hear my four best mates having the time of their life 
being social with people I want to be social with and I was just locked up in my bed. Not all the time, not all the time, of course, as I said, it goes in waves, but those weeks I were, were so, so hard, mate. So, mm-hmm. so hard. And yeah, and it, and it, it just made me realise that, that it, one, it wasn't going away and also that there was no quick fix and also it didn't matter about external factors. It didn't mm-hmm. matter if I was looking at beautiful scenery. It didn't matter if I didn't have a job at the time and I was completely free to want. It didn't matter that I had thousands in my bank. This was an internal issue that I had to sort out. Mm. I want to read out a quote which I wrote down from our conversation we had off air, mate. You said, and this is elaborating what you basically have just said to me. You said, depression is one thing being in a job you might hate in London, having worries about money, etc. But being on the 10th best beach in Australia with your best mates, having loads of money and still deeply depressed is something else. Elaborate on that dichotomy for me. Matt, I'm, I'm liking these. I didn't realise you had these quotes, uh, quotes saved. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that, I just want to say that's in a, a general sense. There was times uh, in London I had jobs I hated, but that was more in a general sense. Yes, and there is a big difference. And again, this is a, a very negative way to look at life, but I'm just going to be honest. There were times where, where I wished I wasn't travelling because then at least I wasn't in the position to miss out on something, if that makes sense. I hear you. As in like... Yeah, experiencing what I experienced in 2017, right? I say I had social anxiety and I couldn't go out, so I stayed in one night. Well, what was I missing? I was missing a night out at a pub that I've been a hundred times with a group of friends I've been out with thousands of times. And also, these people I've already built so many amazing memories with. And also, they've got a perception of me that isn't going to be broken. Like, they've got a perception of me that I've that I've built over the last five years. It's not going to change with one lack of night out, is it? Exactly. No. And yeah, what, what was I missing at a pub or being depressed in rainy London compared to, yeah, when I was socially anxious or depressed in Australia, what was I missing? I was missing, you know, an amazing day out to the beach or I was missing an amazing trip to the coast or when I was travelling, what was I missing? Yeah, I was missing... I couldn't get out of bed, so what was I was I missing? I was missing these amazing trips to waterfalls, or if I missed a, a night out, I missed a night out with friends, new friends, potential new friends that I did want to make new friends with. And then also, they didn't have the perception of me. So if I did go out... You could put a whole new one. Yes, but also, if I did go out and have an off night, then that would be their perception. I see. Okay. You see how it didn't yeah. matter too much if I had an off night with friends that I'd been mm. with for years mm. and years and they'd seen me at my best. These people hadn't seen me at all. So that was really weird, making friends travelling where they actually only knew me with social anxiety. Was that difficult for you? Um, It is difficult. Like, I think if the group of mates I met travelling, especially the mates that I lived with at, say, farming, if they met up with my mates from back here and had a conversation about me, they wouldn't have the same conversation. They definitely wouldn't have the same perception. And that actually happened where I met friends out in Australia who knew my friends from back here. And again, not knowing what they were saying, again, going back to how I didn't know how I said effectively, they'd be like, oh, where's, where's the SPC that blah, blah, blah said about, et cetera, et cetera. I'd work with people, with mutual friends, and they said, oh yeah, blah, blah, works at your place. Says you're very, very quiet. And I was like, no, that's, you know, he's not quiet at all. So it's just so funny. And there were a lot of people like, oh, where's, where's the SPC that I heard about? And it, and sometimes that was hard. And it is hard to make new friends I think when you're going through certain struggles because people need consistency it doesn't matter if that's consistently bad or you're consistently a, a twat or consistently nice but people need to know what they're getting so I've explained my contrast people didn't know where they stood and I think it's it just hard for them it's, it would be hard for me people need consistency and yet one minute I'd be 
absolutely loving life, bantering them. And then the next minute I'd see him in the office, hey Spike. And I'd be so filled with anxiety. I couldn't, I could barely muster up a word to say back to them. So they'd, I'm sure internal, I don't know, they've not said it to me, but I'm sure they'd be like, hmm, like, you know, where do I stand with this guy? Is he the best friend that I made on Friday? Or Does he not I, like me or something exactly, like that? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So look, I, I made some unbelievable friends traveling, but it is hard, mate. It is hard, again, without that consistency. And again, that energy, like, you need that energy that comes with being, I don't know, happy or mentally well to open the door for someone or to wish someone a little happy birthday or or to do the little things that actually amount to the big things of like a friendship and talking about how it does zap your energy sometimes those have bigger consequences missing say a little happy birthday here and there just because you're so stressed about life or or not having the energy to just make a quick remark in the kitchen at an office those do have an effect and I think that's actually all very interesting for anyone who wants to speak to someone going through social anxiety or depression or any mental health problem, I'd say ask about the little things. Because again, those big weeks that I talked about, those awful weeks I had first week of farming or awful weeks travelling where I couldn't leave my room, I couldn't speak to people, you can sort of compartmentalise with that. I just write that off as a bad week. Calm, don't write it, done. Whereas the little things are sort of always there. They're always in your life. You can't compartmentalise that. It is hard. I would promote anyone wanting to speak to their friends, ask them about the little things. Sometimes they have the biggest effects. Mm. I want to talk about social media a little bit here because the highlight reel of Instagram traveling culture is, like anything, a lot different from the reality. And you were pretty, well, you still are active on social media. And I think when it came to your traveling, you were very active on it. You wanted to kind of show a lot of the good times. I remember one story I saw when you had to hitchhike off some yummy mummy or something like that in Australia and uh, yeah it just looked like an absolute madness was that at any point when your mental health wasn't that great and how do you sort of view social media when it comes especially Instagram when it comes to that yeah so I'd I'd never use social media when I was in a bad place well I'd, I'd, I'd just never I'd just be off it I couldn't even again anyone who's experienced social anxiety you don't even have energy to text people that you've got no energy to text your family you just turn your phone off, you just unlock yourself in a room and, and, and be detached from the world. So I'd never used social media when in that bad place and I've never felt, I mean, there's, there's that general need of wanting to make your life look good, especially travelling and I've definitely been there where I've spent 20 minutes editing a picture travelling to make it look better, which is, you know, it's awful culture. It is an awful app and it is pretty much an awful culture we live in. But no, I've never felt a real desire to, to be someone I'm not on Instagram and, and yeah, I've just always used it to for when I'm happy, just like an outlet to upload videos of, of me out and whatnot. But yeah, it, I think it is it is an awful app, mate. And I actually deleted it. When did I delete it? I think I deleted it first. Yeah, no, what? you deleted it for a while, didn't you? And you came back on. I've deleted it about three times and I'm I'm looking to delete, delete it again. Because, <laughs> mate, once you delete it, I found new passions. Like the first time I deleted it, I found a new passion for UFC and MMA and actually joined a, an MMA gym. Just because you've got so much free time. So it allow, you allow yourself to be bored and then when you're bored, you then pick up a book or you go down a YouTube I've read or, so much and watched so many kind of positive YouTube videos just from not being on social media, man. Mate, it, it's so good. Not Yeah, we live in a world where people want to constantly be uh, stimulated, but then we don't allow ourselves to be bored and therefore we don't allow, allow ourselves to go down different routes of creativity or find new passions. But um, yeah, the first time I deleted it was great and I did do that. I just started a new job and I just wanted to really focus on that and I wanted to focus on getting sponsored in Australia. So I thought, look, let me get rid of this distraction. And then when I jumped back on, 
I just saw it for what it was. And I was just scrolling through and seeing people like, you know, posing in, in the gym or like... Just living fake lives, isn't it, mate? Yeah. yeah. I, always, I always say like, for me, and I say this a lot on different podcasts, that when I started muting... I mean, social media, Instagram and Twitter especially, I try and use them just on my laptop because I think that helps a lot more. But I was following a lot of these kind of old mates from uni. And yeah, I was good mates with them and stuff, but they were just so boring in real life when I saw them. They were just so boring. And I'm just like, you're portraying a different version of yourself. When I see you in real life, you've got nothing to say to me. So, so I just like, I'll just mute them. Name them, Fred. Name I'm not naming Adam, and shaming. Adam. I'm not going to at them. I'm, like I'm, cr- I'm not cruel enough to do that. But Man like Fred on the mic, calling out people. <laughs> calling out people. Yeah, I know. I should, I should go on um, I should go on like one of these like shade borough like, shows or something like that. But, um, <laughs> but that, that's how I kind of see it. Like a lot of these people on social media are living fake lives. Yeah, the way I see it, I, I don't think social media has created new problems in society. It's just accentuated them. And it's mm. just given them a platform to thrive. There's an image that goes around of the people in, I don't know, the 1950s, all on the train, but they're all engrossed in their newspaper. And then there was like a com- comparison picture of everyone engrossing their phones. And it's basically saying, nothing's changed. People still just like being with themselves or not, not speaking the truth. And I think it's the same, like, when you see someone or you ask someone about the relationship, they're, they're never going to, unless it's a really close friend, they're not going to say, oh yeah, we had this row here. And they're going to say, yeah, she's great. Yeah, I love her. Or I love him, etc. Or if you ask someone about a round of golf right? They're going to tell you about the round of golf where they shot the best, right? Except, except if you ask to someone who likes a bet, they tell you about the wins. So I think all of these problems have always been in society, but social media has just allowed it to thrive. 100%. So it's just even, it's like hyper, hyper look at me, hyper look how good my life is, etc. And it, it is awful. It is all, and um, what was it? Yeah, so when I went back on it, I saw this and I just saw... You became self-aware of that. You saw through the masks of people. I, yeah. just, I just hated it. I just, I just couldn't believe that I used to be like super posy on there. And I just, it just, every time I scrolled and I saw someone with like a selfie, I was just like, really? So then I basically now just use it to be an absolute nutter. <laughs> so if everyone's, so believe me, going back to that question, do I ever feel, feel a need to like express anything? No, look on my Instagram and realise that. <laughs> that is authentically <laughs> you, but the nutter version of you. I'm literally yeah, just posting yeah. for my mates, for my close mates. But um, yeah, and, and it's funny you mentioned Twitter. I think all social media is narcissistic, but Twitter was actually good. Cause it For was a like, while, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was kind of banner. Yeah. But it was like, it was at least that was being narcissistic or and that was needing validation about like being witty or saying a clever remark or social commentary, etc. Whereas Instagram is narcissistic and validation about just pure physical appearance. Mm. So, I mean... I, or not, life achievements or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd, I'd say more... F- it's more physical appearance, mm. isn't it? Because really? pictures is just visuals, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, social media is interesting. Um, I feel like um, when COVID hit, the toxicity of it switched between Twitter and Instagram. So before, Twitter was quite... It was the one I had to kind of monitor the most. Well, monitor the least, sorry. And Instagram was one I had to monitor the most, kind of with my own mental health. And then when COVID hit, because everyone was just talking about COVID all the time and I had to mute so many words and... I had to kind of put screen time limits. Instagram kind of became a bit more purer for a while. Maybe because I had muted so many accounts on that too. But then the minute we sort of came out of COVID and elections and all the news and stuff and the news cycle just switched again and, and Instagram became the toxic one. And, and well, I guess they are toxic in different ways. But yeah, it's just toxic if you let it get on top of you, mate, isn't it? It's a really good tool. And for Vent, you know, it's been amazing to connect with people. I've had, I've become really close mates with people. I've just met online and just like invited them on to come on the pod. And I talk to them more about mental health than probably my mates do mm-hmm. because my mates are great and I love them all to bits. But 
Sometimes they might not all have the exact communication skills to talk to me about my mental health and it's filtering that out. But when it comes to your mental health, Spike, have you found that you've been able to speak to your mates more openly and more and better than you w- would have, say, 2016? I've always been very open. I, I think you said it earlier, there are a lot of walls to get down to like someone who's, who's going to show you a bit more of depth about me. But in general, I think I am pretty much heart on my sleeve well, I'm a bit of a contradiction. I can be both, but definitely, <laughs> definitely in this case, I've always been very open. I'm, I still am. While I'm on the podcast, I'm very, very keen about breaking down the stigmas, talking about mental health. I actually find it very interesting. I find it like what is actually going on. <laughs> uh, I find like the science behind it very interesting, and I find it interesting that it seems like we are going through a pandemic of mental health issues, and it's just so interesting how many people are affected. Like being open, you just realise that so many people are going through it um, and it just seems like we're all fighting the same battle now you're back from traveling and you're adjusting to this weird new normal we are recording when it's just about kind of coming back a little bit this this the old normal shall we say who's the spike i'm speaking to now as opposed to maybe the 15 year old or even the 22 year old spike yeah i mean i mean very different i mean i'd love to meet the 15 year old one just like play a <laughs> tennis game with him or or god knows i mean yeah be a bit shot by your hair <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it would be. Although maybe not. I think I think fifteen. I was watching nine hundred two one zero, trying to model myself on Liam. So I've pre- I'm pretty sure I had um I had a swooping JB Bieber haircut. So it probably wouldn't have been that uh that much of a shock. As I got later and I started doing the comb over, maybe. But yeah, I think I think it'd be the same for everyone. You do really really change, especially over those years from fifteen to twenty one, from twenty one to twenty six. But yeah, I am very, very different. But as I said, it's not all negative in, in a good way. I, I am a lot more, I hope I am a lot more compassionate. I'm able to speak to my friends about their mental health issues. I'm a lot more understanding, empathetic, sympathetic and aware of, of my own actions. And to be fair, the way I see it now is just all the L's that I take are just L's that my future triplet sons are not going to take. <laughs> so it's cool. I'm just going to take all these L's. I'm going to hit all these bad golf shots. And it just means that they're not going to hit a, a bad golf shot in their life. Mm. Or when if they hit it, it's going to be less of an impact on them because you'll know how to talk to them afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. Because I've gone through it. I know you just got to change that grip, mate. Just change yeah. that grip. I've got one more question before we move on, mate. If you could go back and talk to that teenage Spike, maybe even the 19, 15, 21-year-old Spike, impart a bit of wisdom, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Yeah, I, I don't think it'd be a talk. It, it would, I, I would grab be a lecture. Him, yes, I, I'd, I'd grab him by the scruff of the neck. I'd say, listen here, mate, get yourself together. But then you can't say that because that's who I am. I actually get all of my, I'm getting a lot of my philosophical thinking on life at the moment from none other than Kanye West. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say Joe Rogan for a second then. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to have another <laughs> chat with you. No, it's, it's old Kanye West, and he's got, I can't remember what song it is. I missed the old Kanye. You on that level, Kanye. College dropout, Kanye. Yeah, well, it was, it was, and it was more song. He just said, I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Big Brother, but he just said, everything I'm not makes me everything I am. So I can't really look back and say, oh, I wish I was more, you know, focused on this, or I was a bit more clued up, because then... That's... I wouldn't want you to say that either, because that's having regrets and wanting to change things that you can't change. But if there was something that you think, ah... Oh, I wish he'd have known that and I could have helped him. What would that be? Um, I don't know. I think, I think, yeah, I just think don't be as, as naive. And I just wish that, you know, I just understood how our life worked a bit more and just 
concentrated and focused a bit more on certain things. Just had a bit more foresight. I just very much am in the moment, impulsive. You know, I don't think about tomorrow, let alone next year or next week. So probably just say sharpen up, mate. Think more about the long term rather than right now, right here. I found a topic of conversation spike and it's one I try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter and a chat about our mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate yeah I mean it really has just been swings and roundabouts ever since I first experienced it and I really am still going through the paces of learning how to deal with it so um yeah I mean it's, it's hard to answer that question a couple of weeks ago I had a really really bad week and then following that I had amazing two weeks and, and whatnot it is a funny thing I'm not sure how how you do with it but it feels like a, a cold that sometimes it's like a common cold like it just comes around and I catch it here and there and like you know <laughs> but instead of having a block nose and a, co- uh, block nose and a cough I just have these feelings of anxiety and I'm tired and yet yeah, I just have this train of thought about rumination overthinking anxiety so yeah it's a weird one it it, it comes around like a common cold um, mm. and sometimes I go six weeks without experiencing anything and, and sometimes I, I catch it twice in a month but um yeah I'm still learning mate if I'm being completely open, which is uh, what I've come here to be, and I, I want to break down the stigma. I appreciate that, mate. I break down the stigma. I just started therapy. Amazing. We were talking about this for a while, weren't we? And yeah. you were kind of saying, "Do I want to do this?" And I was saying, "You got to no, do it at your own pace when you're ready." How have you found that? So yeah, I've had a couple of sessions, a couple of sessions, and so far it's been CBT, CAT, all cognitive analytical therapy. Okay, mm. tell me about that. What is it for C-A-T. the listeners who don't know? I'm going to be honest. I don't know too much by it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> All, all I know is that it's some fantastic human with a PhD trying to trying to help me out, and he's he's a great chap. But um, yeah, that therapy situation was really funny because obviously I've been experiencing it for four years, and mm. it consumed me, and it was the only thing I cared about fixing. And yet I still do only start therapy this late, and it was just I suppose the first year that sucker punch. I didn't even know I needed therapy. I didn't know what therapy was. I didn't know what mental health problems were. It was just a just knew I was feeling weird. And then traveling was so hard because I was I was always in a different location. I didn't have enough stability. I wasn't in the same place enough to get it. So I reached out to people in Sydney and Australia and just when I got close to actually starting, I then did a ski season or I then went farming. So yeah, one great thing about coming back, again, as I said, it's one of the reasons why I came back is the fact that I've been here, been back at my family house, had that stability. I've been in the same area. And of course, because it's my country, I've got more access to, to healthcare. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about the fact that I actually have come back and I've capitalised on that and started therapy. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that journey. And yeah, I think just break down the stigmas around mental health and break down the stigmas around therapy. I think mm. if you can spend £60 a month on your physical health in a gym, spend £60 a month on a therapy session on your mental health. Mm. What other tools and methods do you use in your own life apart from therapy to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that haven't I know you're going to say golf in this one because it is a big one for you isn't it yeah so I mean golf really was self-care which is funny because it's so frustrating and it can it can be very depressing at times if not depressing every hole but you know golf was a was a savior and yeah it was self-care I just used to come back after work go out on my own play five holes in Sydney with the uh, with, with, with the sun setting. Just beautiful. Like you just lock your phone away in your bag. You're only focusing on hitting this tiny white ball and trying to get close to a hole that's 400 yards away. And it was just beautiful. You, you know, especially in Sydney, you've got these exotic birds, you know, chirping around you. and it's Probably some alligators or something as well. <laughs> yeah, mate, all the rest. And yeah, it was it was brilliant. But 
yeah, and, and as I said, touched earlier, I think sport is a fantastic outlet. You know, get those endorphins flowing, uh, have something to focus on. So yeah, golf has been great. And then other than that, if I'm being just completely honest, it's more just been winging it. And, and, and that's why I'm really glad to start therapy. I want to start learning about how to stop certain trains of thought or how to deal with anxiety in better ways I don't know if there's breathing techniques or whatever it is I am just very excited to be less ignorant about it and just learn about it from someone who's Mm -hmm. studied for eight years in a PhD and someone who's a lot more uh, a lot smarter than me which isn't hard can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health who was it with what impact did it have and at the time did it feel like this big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel fairly insignificant and normalised for you? That's an interesting question, and I'd I'd say both. So what's really funny is because it's gone on for so long, my memory has changed about what I went through. And because I've experienced it for for, for four years, I thought it was actually more a gradual change. And it wasn't until I started therapy and I spoke to my mum about that on the podcast. She reminded me that I made her go for a meal with me. I didn't realise that I realised that something was up very, very quickly. So I say, let me say, first experienced it at that festival. That was early September. I went for a meal with my mum within two weeks. I went to the doctors within three weeks, and I spoke to my best, best mate about it. So it was. Do I shout him out? Yeah, I spoke to Dan Littledike, who uh, yeah, I've given tons. Like he knows how much I love that kid. <laughs> um, and for anyone who don't know, not only is he fantastically good looking, he's actually very, very intelligent, which is uh, quite wow. You're giving to him, say. you're giving him a lot of, you're giving yeah. him a lot too much credit. I feel here. Yeah, no, that that was painful to say, but uh, no, he's an absolute great chap, and yeah, he's he's actually given me a lot of uh, wisdom over the years. And yeah, I first opened up to him. I was, you know, still extremely close to him. But I was extremely close, especially in in 2016. Yeah, so I opened up to him on a night out. And again, because I was ignorant, I just said, mate, something's up. Like, I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. And he was like, well, if you don't know, I don't know. But no, he gave me a lot of, um, a lot of wisdom even then. And then, yeah, I spoke to my mom. I said, again, because I didn't know what it was, I said, mom, something's not right. Can we go for a meal? I went for a lovely Indian with her and just tried to articulate what I was going through, but it's very tough. And then, yeah, I, I went to the doctors, uh, within three weeks, which is weird because, yeah, just reconfirmed that it was overnight. And then, yes, open up to my mum and, and best friend was fantastic. But the reason why I said both is the doctor's appointment was very un- underwhelming. Um, which okay. is, In what sense? Which is a shame. Not the right advice? Or did they just give you a leaflet, something like that? Or, yeah. Just gave me a leaflet. Didn't. Fortunately, uh, that does happen when, when the lack of education, obviously, is there. I wanted to sort of dive into it. I thought maybe it was going to be a therapy session, again, naive. And he just said, yeah, okay, cool. Like, as if it was just, I don't know, a question, something that, all these patients say but maybe they do because it is so is mm. so prevalent I've only got 10 minutes with you as well I think sometimes I forget that GPs have you know 10 people in a day and if you talk to them something about really really deep if you want to go in deeper they they can't and they exactly exactly yeah. so yeah again your leaflet gave me a line to call I think I called it and he just again as I said I was looking for a magic pill at that time um, did it feel too formal or I don't know what I was looking for but it wasn't that but through my naivety, I didn't know what I was looking for, but it wasn't that. And yeah, I think I was just looking for that magic pill. And then, yeah, that was that. I didn't, I thought, okay, well, that's not going to help. I'm going to try and get over this myself. But yeah, again, it wasn't until I realised that I'm going to live with this now and that um, it was a lot bigger than than a magic fix that I then really wanted to reach out and, mm. uh, and, and seek therapy. We talk a lot about toxic masculinity on this pod, Spike, and hopefully in a few more years, a few more pods, it will be in a very small minority, maybe you won't even exist, who knows. What does it mean to you 
And what examples have you experienced in your life of it that you can share with the listeners? I believe that it starts in school amongst boys, young boys. And if you don't tackle it there and then with education, with telling them about how to manage their emotions, about what the impact words can have on them or behaviours with girls, let's say, then it can manifest as an adults. But if we nip it in the bud then, I think we can stop it. What is your perspective on it and what examples have you seen of it? So do you think it's completely social and not biological? I think it's a... Do you know what? That's an interesting question. I think it's a bit of both. I think boys... And we talked about this on me, me and Lloyd talked about this kind of the, the sheep versus the not the wolf, but the sheep kind of uh, label where toxic behaviors can happen in school and boys can either because of fear of social ostracization or because their minds are just malleable and they want to fit in. They can then pick up those behaviors. That's how bullying starts. That's how all these horrible behaviors starts. So I think it, a lot of it is social, but there obviously is an element where you just get evil kids or you just get exceptions to the rule. But I think a lot of it is social for me. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are obviously um, certain uh, gender roles that, of course, there's a lot of loud on at the moment. There's probably toxic femininity. There is. Femininity, yeah. if yeah, that's yeah. a word. Um, Cancel culture, you could argue. But yeah, I think I think it's, it's probably in art biology, but then, of course, society says we have to. The Hollywood movies and a lot of the Western culture says that you've got to be a man, you've got to fix up. Six-pack, big and strong. Every time you have... <laughs> someone pointed out to this me the other day, and they said, a guest did, and they said... Um, all these action movies when two men are arguing with each other, they have a fight and then everything's fine <laughs> and then they're best mates. <laughs> well, that I think that's a fantastic trait of men. I've been in that situation so many times, especially with uh, with enough with mental health because and touching about the little things. I don't know about you, but like it's it's made me a lot more of a it's made me a lot more confrontational because because you're quite frustrated at life or because you're sometimes you have these weeks of anxiety. After those weeks. It doesn't take much for me to kick off, you know. So, so yeah, but I love that. Like you could. Just... So you love that. See, no. I'm more like we need to be sorting out things with our words. Not, for, I think fighting should be a last resort. I mean, you obviously need to do it if you if you feel like you are being threatened, but and self defense and stuff. But we need to, we need to be telling boys to sort out their stuff with their words, surely. But right, but I don't think it's exclusive to physical. I, like as in the way that I think it's still there with men when you could have like a verbal. You mean like it's just a confrontation, right? Okay. I'm yeah. with you now. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's physical. I think I think men just in general, you have any sort of any form of confrontation. Next day, handshake, everything's good to go. I I, I love that about men because it's it's never that deep. What you whatever you said when you're angry, you didn't mean etc. And, and confrontation is just part of life. But yeah, toxic masculinity. I've never experienced it that much. I think the most masculine I've ever been was those kid fatal days um, when I was about 13. And I thought I was a gangster. But yeah, I've, I've never felt the need to be masculine. I've always been the mindset that true masculinity or true confidence comes with being confident in yourself do you know what i mean like being able to bang out a bit of justin mm. bieber that's true confidence. you think that's a privilege though because you did fit in a lot of school so maybe you took it as a given 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. yeah whereas i didn't so therefore i saw maybe the toxic masculinity come out more because of the ostracization and the bullying and all that stuff yeah no that that is that is very I've, i definitely would be blind to a lot of those social problems because i'd always been quite socially popular 100 percent so yeah, but I, I think touching on the toxic masculinity, I think the, one of the most amazing things that's happened to mental health in the last couple of years is Tyson Fury. Have you looked into his story much? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. I know mate. Working in this yeah. space, I know the story. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I just, I just couldn't read <laughs> read you there. But um, I think what he has done, and it just proves how far we've come with breaking down stigmas. And if anyone's going to do it, he's the epitome of masculinity. He's the epitome of 
your modern day man and he's within the industry that is built on aggression on bravado a, a lot of things you could possibly think lean into toxic masculinity especially when you put in the showbiz side the narcissism that a lot of boxers unfortunately tend to end up becoming because because the sport in a way is gravitated towards that it's a single you know it's a solo sport you need to promote yourself massively then ego comes into it so yeah i mean you are right yeah it's literally perfect i don't think you could pick a better industry or a better person to break down the stigmas a six foot nine heavyweight champion of the world that could take anyone on bar maybe Francis bar maybe his dad <laughs> yeah maybe his dad or, or Francis Ngannou or someone in the UFC but his story and the way he's so open and again it just it sheds light on what's talking about how wild this beast is you're talking about the hardest man in the world who for a living takes punches for 12 rounds from people like Anthony Joshua and other people who are the baddest people on the planet and he said that a day of mental health problems was like the worst thing they've experienced. And he said that those punches in comparison were like a feather hitting you. And the way he just speaks about how how mental health is a different beast to, to like physical pain. And just talking about how he dealt with depression and then also how... And he, substance abuse as well, which he talked about. All of that. Mm. And also talked about how the same way, I don't want to make it about myself, but the same way... He says there was no trigger. He said he was a heavyweight champion in the world. He was with his childhood sweetheart. He had a beautiful family. He had all the money in the world. His life was perfect. And then all of a sudden he got hit with depression for no reason. I think that's a good example of money can't buy you happiness, isn't it? Yeah. And again, and again, of what we're talking about, how it's not external, it's internal. And doesn't discriminate based on class, gender, age, wealth. That is proper. This mental health beast, it does not care. It will it can attack anyone, anyone at any time. So and also what I want to say on that is anyone listening who is just listening because they know me and haven't got mental health issues, I I, I do want to be cautious about what I'm saying. I don't want to give advice. But I actually think we need to normalise therapy because I actually think the people who haven't ever experienced mental health problems are the ones that need it the most, in the sense that they've got the most to lose. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do see what you mean. Explain that a bit more for the listeners. As in like all of our approach to physical health, right, is, is all proactive, right? Mm. Don't eat too much sugar because it will do this. Don't eat too much salt. Don't drink too much because it will affect your liver and kidney in the future. Everything is with foresight, right? Stretch before you work out so you don't... I know where you're muscle. going with this. Whereas mental health is all reactive. You have to wait until you... Or be suicidal before you get seen or get help or ask or even ask for help with a lot of these men. Exactly. So it's all reactive. It's... People only go to therapy when it's too late, when they have been affected. Whereas with physical health, you'd go to the dentist for checkups before... Or a slight warning or something like that. Exactly. Because you'd think, oh, this is a problem. If I leave it, it's going to get even even worse and then I need to, then it's going to be too late. Exactly. So I think we need to normalise therapy like we normalise the gym. I, I don't think we're too far off going back to that social media. You see how everyone... We're definitely in a culture now where everyone is so fixated on their physical appearance and being, if you're a man, being as big as possible, as strong as possible. Got to be plonks, got to be shredded. Otherwise, you're going to get no matches on, on Tinder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you think about how focused people are on going to the gym or having the right diet, there's probably a fine line between changing that narrative from physical health to mental health. We need to be careful with it as well because I've got to caveat this by saying that whereas when we grew up, Spike, mental health wasn't a thing. You know, boys were called pussies if they showed any form of emotion, all that jazz. We've gone, on, gone over this already. But now we've got to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing the other way with these kids because they are 
so self-aware of their mental health. They're almost self-diagnosing things they don't even have, or some of them must be. And social media can then play into that. So we've got to strike that. Like the balance of physical health, strike the balance of mental health. Isn't that right? And that is exactly why I said I really want to be cautious about what I'm saying. Because, of course, then it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you go to a therapist. You've had no problems before. You have certain conversations. And then it starts triggering something. Or you then start going to a therapist and think, oh, maybe I do have that. So... Yes, but that's what I'm saying about normalise. So that would only, I think that would only be an effect because it's new. Whereas if you normalise it from the get-go, you have a therapist at every school and every single student sees a therapist no matter what and you completely normalise it. And then they realise they maybe don't need one or something like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But look, it is, it is obviously very tough and that's why I said you've got to be cautious. So maybe not go to a therapist, but just... Find the thing that works for you, I more, think. More prevention. I'll tell you what, I found the answer to what you're asking about. What would I say to my, my old self? Mm. I would say to my old self, you're extremely happy and confident now. Work out why, and then build on that. As in, if you're happy now, and you haven't experienced any mental health problems, maybe spend some time thinking about that. Say, why are you confident? Is it because... What's working for you? What's working for you, and build on that, because... I didn't know why I was confident when I used to be confident. I didn't know why I was happy when I was happy. So I suppose then when that was taken away, I didn't know how to get it back. Or it was a bit like how we said, it was like a it was like a happiness bubble. You see how like a financial bubble is when things are just rising for no reason. I was happy for no reason, if that makes sense. So it was, It's a good place to be, to be fair. People yeah, would be envious of that. Of course, but it was going to pop. So yeah, maybe not therapy, but just what I'd say to anyone experiencing, uh, well, not experiencing mental health problems, don't think you are exempt, as we've seen, as we just spoke about Tyson Theory, uh, Tyson Theory, Tyson Fury, and just focus on that. But yeah, talking about masculinity, I think Tyson Fury is an absolute hero for that. And his story, if he comes back, and it's very likely he will win against Anthony Joshua. That, debatable, that, but... That needs to be made into a movie. That is incredible. And yeah, if he's listening, I'm sure he will listen. Tyson, you're a good man. (laughs) I've got two questions left, mate. We also talk a lot about positive masculinity, as you've discussed a little bit there. There's no real defined definition of this, so you can go with this where you want. How would you define it? Because in a few more pods, I'd like to think, and maybe a few more years, I'd like to think that masculinity will just be positive masculinity. It won't be derided. It will just be seen as this holistic thing. Some guests have talked about self-confidence. Some guests have talked about self-awareness, empathy for others, not man-shaming, supporting other men. How would you define it? I would say positive masculinity should be all based around the gender role of being a provider. Ooh, interesting. So That's not a definition I've heard because the provider stuff was the stuff that was making men feel bad because they were thinking that they had to live up to the breadwinner thing and then therefore they couldn't complain or reach out so tell me to expand on that a little bit for me let me expand on that what i'd expand on is you look at less about the financial providing less about the physical protection and that's more about the looking after aspect more about the compassion more about provider for yourself yeah and others but more in a sense of being emotionally there for people intelligent emotional intelligence exactly if you're providing for your family that doesn't mean you're putting the roof over their head but it just means that or if you're the protector you're you're not the protector in the physical sense you're the protector as in i'm looking after you i'm super compassionate and then we look at more positive masculinity with being more emotionally intelligent more compassionate and, and just going down that route i've got one more question left mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it. Just do what you're doing. 
Um, I'll just That's not a question that I... <laughs> By the way, I need to always preface this when people compliment me. This is not a question just to get a compliment for myself. <laughs> and look, you know, I, I know mate, might not like this because people feel weird when they get compliments, but what you've done, mate, is incredible. And to also do it while holding a very stressful job... And mate, it's honestly been inspiring, and that's why I reached, you, that's why I reached out to you when you did your article, um, and that's why I'm so happy to be here and helping to break down stigmas, positive masculinity. Let's bind together. Let's bind together. I think it's ironic that, assumingly, the most healthy part of society, the most physically strong, let's say, 18 to what is it, 40, are at most risk. I find that like, ironic. Mm. Like the the healthiest and the strongest are the ones most affected. So I think we should take that personal. Right. If you're going through mental health, I take that personal. We bind together. We are together. Reach out to each other. And yeah, just just people like Tyson Fury, people like Dave, opening up his, his psychodrama album. I think I thought was masterpiece, isn't it? Masterpiece and just fantastic commentary on his mental health problems. If you listen to the lyrics and also the way that he's even got a therapist. The interlude, isn't the it? Interlude. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stormzy open about depression again. What is he? Six foot four. In these industries, again, if, if there's anything that's comparable to the boxing industry, mate, I think grime and UK rap would have its its fair share of bravado, toxic yeah, yeah, toxic behaviours, industry behaviours, yeah. So I'll be honest, I don't think we need to do anything new. I think we're doing the right things. It's just about more, just about more. And yeah, it just it seems like even in the medical sense, the scientific sense, that we're shedding more light on it. And I think that's amazing. I think I don't see how the scientific world wouldn't be as stunned at something as complex as a brain and what's going on in our biology and chemistry as opposed to you know what's out in the distance what planets we can we can reach so yeah i just think continue what we're doing more research more funding and maybe we'll get there spike potter clark thank you for coming on the just checking in podcast thank you very much mate great seeing you Well, guys, this is all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you, a big, big thank you to Spike for being my special guest on this episode's pod and talking about his mental health publicly for the first time. I always find it a big privilege when people decide to do this with me on vent. So thank you to Spike. And I hope you guys have all got a massive amount out of it. Maybe seen the real Spike for those who might not have seen it before. As always... If you have liked what you've heard on this episode and you want to tell people about it, please do tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family, tell anyone you think would benefit from hearing this podcast. Share it on social media as well. Maybe if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That will really help the algorithms out. We feel like this is a podcast which shares the and has the uncomfortable conversations that other people don't want to have. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us even more, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you just want to give a one-off donation, that will really help us out massively. So you can do that by visiting our GoFundMe page. That is also in the link tree on Vent and that's on all our social media channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.